So we've uh, reached the place in uh, 2 Corinthians where we're up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 uh, through 4. Uh, that text is uh, printed in the bulletin and also up on the uh, screens behind me. <clears throat> uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 4. This is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. So um, one of the things that you have to see about what's going on in this passage is you have to put it in some sort of context. And part of part of the context is Paul, up to this point in time, has been defending his ministry, right? He has had these people who says he corrupts people, right? And that uh, he has taken advantage of people. And, and, and so he says very specifically in this, as he's finishing off this section, he says, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. Right. So those we know those were the accusations that were against him. And so he's spent a, a, a big chunk of this time kind of answering those. But now, as he talks about this, he shifts the argument and we're going to see uh, in the coming weeks how that works. But what he's doing here is he he says to us and the way he talks uh, to the church in Corinth, the way he relates to them and the way his relationship is worked out in that is something that's really helpful for us. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at two things that jump out at this uh, text. The first thing is we're going to look at the nature of relationships. And we're going to ask a couple of questions about that by, by looking at his relationship uh, with the church in Corinth and their relationship with him. We're going to unpack some of that. And then we'll look at the end of this text where he says those remarkable words uh, that in all of his affliction... Uh, he's uh, in joy. Uh, he, he has uh, incredible joy. So, uh, uh, Becky, go ahead and put my, my notes up there. So, um, so let me ask you, what is the nature of your relationships? Now, that's, that's a funny question, and that's, that's one that I think is probably kind of uh, uh, one that we don't, we don't think of very much. We probably think, well, my relationships are satisfying or my relationships are, are generally good or, or I have relationships that are broken. But what I want to talk to you about and what, what is so profound about what's going on in this passage uh, is a demonstration to us of something that we miss often uh, in our relationships and why, for many of us, uh, uh, the, 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 the relationships that we have really are, are, are pretty weak and um, not very, well, not very fulfilling. So, so we often think in terms about our relationships that are not fully accurate or at least uh, fully uh, biblical. And, and the reason for that is we tend to think of relationships in our culture, and this is, this is not unusual, as issues of power, of give and take. That's typically the way we think about it. And and you can think in your in today that you know you have relationships where where it's your job uh, you, you know you do all the giving, and this other person uh, is the one that does all the receiving, 
right? And, and for some of us, we think about that, and I, I'm going to address this in a few minutes. Don't, don't be tempted to, to bitterness by that, because the fact of the matter is the problem in that relationship might not be the other person. It actually might be you, because in your pride, you're unwilling to put yourself in a situation where you can receive. Next slide. You see, what we have here is Paul is God's man. You know, Jesus has appeared to him. He has remarkable authority. I mean, he he is an apostle and he wrote most of the New Testament. He started the church, you know, and and here he is. He's been in this at the church at Corinth. He's been in this crazy relationship with him. And yet what we see happening in this text is that that there's a there's a reciprocity that's going on here. He has remarkable and almost immeasurable authority. He speaks for God. And so we'd be tempted to think that he's the dominant person in this relationship with the Corinthians. Uh, but this dominance is not is not what we think, right? So so what you have to see about this is is that what's happening is is, is things shift in this text, and we see it pretty clearly, right? He urges them not to. Uh, listen to or give credence to the criticisms about him. But then he says, I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together, right? There's that They belong to one another. You know, it's not like I'm your boss or I'm the one who's doing all the loving and therefore, you know, you're kind of subservient to me. Now, well, let, let me, let me un- unpack a little bit more about how this works because... It, we tend to think about relationships in terms of exchange. That's not what this is about. This is not an exchange. It's a reciprocity. And there's a difference. There's a difference. We're going we're gonna to unpack this a little bit more. So, so what you have to see here is, um, well, think of it this way. So um, I was uh, riding around uh, one day uh, recently with my daughter, and we were talking about her future plans and what she wants to do and, and things like that. Because in a year, she's probably, uh, probably, <laughs> in a year, she's out of college. And so, um, so, so um, we are, uh, so it's dawning on her, oh, I, I got I to gotta do something. What am I going to do? So she's thinking about teaching. Now, her mother is a teacher, and um, uh, but she does not want to do what her mom does. She doesn't want to teach little kids, um, which is funny because it caused us to have this kind of conversation. This is going to be embarrassing, so get ready to blush, okay? <laughs> so, so what what um, what happens often in our family? And I hope I can, I hope I can tell you this. Uh, because uh, this is, is such a great thing, is um, my wife loves simply. She just simply loves. She's not, she's not simplistic, but she's just very simple in the way in which she loves. And, th- and our kids have been spoiled by that. And so one of the ways that I know they're spoiled by it is, is the way they think about that, you know, mom just loves us. And so the temptation that they have is because she simply loves that somehow or other, She's just simple. In a way, only kids could think about their moms. Okay. And so we were talking about what she would do when when she got got out of college. What what Maddie would do when she got out of college. And I'm like, yeah, I can tell you right now. You know, I don't want anything to do with a room full of first graders. <laughs> 
I can't think of anything more soul grinding than five days a week to have to face a bunch of six-year-olds day in, day out, and love them and care for them and take their emotional temperatures and their physical temperatures and wipe their noses and teach them to read and teach them to add and teach them uh, to subtract. And, and the thing that is profound about that is, is this woman who the kids perceive as very simple, when she is in the classroom, it's like, wow, look at that. She is doing something here that I could never do, ever. Not because I don't want to do it. I love kids, but trust me, you don't want your kids to have me as their first grade teacher. (laughs) You just don't. It's not going to go well at all, right? So she has this remarkable authority and love. I mean, she looks at every one of them in the face when they come in in the, in the classroom every day, and she knows what's going on, and it's, it's a profound thing. But even in that relationship, there's reciprocity. Now, I'm not going to go into all the things that she gets from them or all the things that not necessarily that she gets, but the things that she receives from them. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that up to, to you uh, to imagine, but the fact is, even in that sort of relationship, like the apostle to the church, the teacher to her class, there for a rich, full gospel understanding to happen here, there has to be a, a, a reciprocity, a giving and receiving. So bear with me in this, this uh, long quotation to unpack this a little bit more. In the present context, with Paul's words of praise for the Corinthians, something remarkable has taken place. The apostle and his church have exchanged roles. Normally, it is the apostle who first receives comfort and affliction so that he can give it forth to others. Remember the great beginning of this letter where he says, he praises the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we then will be able to comfort others with the comfort that we have received, right? So normally it is the apostle who first receives comfort and affliction so that he can give it forth to others, right? Um, in the first instance, the Corinthians are the receivers of comfort from the apostle. At this moment, however, the apostle has received comfort from them. They've been God's tools and agents in the life of the apostle. So among Christians and indeed in the world, there are no absolute givers and no absolute receivers. God alone in Christ remains the absolute giver. That just shot across my mind this week as a, as a lightning bolt, you know, and it, and it, and it caused me to stop a little bit and to think about, uh, uh, about the nature of, of, of my relationships and the way this, this kind of works because we live in changing roles of receiving and giving, giving and receiving. Of course, the reciprocity may not take the form it does with Paul and the Corinthians. Often we receive in order to give forth to others uh, and, and not to one who has given to us, right? So, so we're not talking about an exchange here. We're simply looking at that what happens to us in the gospel is, is that God is always in an attitude and in a heart towards us in Christ of giving. And, that, 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 and you may think, wait a minute, I give to God all the time. 
Really? Does God need anything from you? Do you think he needs something from you? Not in the way I need things, certainly, right? Um, so, of course, the reciprocity may take the form it does, may not take the form it does with Paul and the Corinthians. Often we receive in order to give forth to others and not to one who has, has given to us. And speaking in this way to the Corinthians, Paul elevates them remarkably. Now, I think that's a pretty profound thing for us because for some of us, I guarantee you, there are people in your lives people that you uh, uh, you interact with all the time that you don't want to elevate and you by by receiving from them because it is such a it's such a profound and difficult thing for us I, one of the things one of the things that is so hard for me is to receive uh, it is it is a it is on the one hand you think well this would just be great if somebody would just give this to me but when gifts come to us and we have no sense of earning or deserving them. They simply come to us. It, it, it can be a very, it can be a very hard thing. Um, several years ago, we were caught in a situation where, and I, if you ever want to know how not to get in this situation, I will tell you, uh, but because I got in this situation, where as a family, we needed five cars. Oh my goodness. How stupid. But it just worked out that way. We needed five cars because we were over busy, too many people coming and going, schedules out of control. We needed five cars. They didn't have to be great cars. I don't believe in great cars, but, but, but they had to be cars. And a friend of mine came up to me and said, I'll give you a car. Now, what was remarkable about this gift was, first of all, it came with a folder with a spreadsheet of all of the maintenance that had been done and would need to be done for the next 15 years because this car is going to last that long. It's been that well-maintained. I mean, it's a beautiful car. We love this car. We we still have this car. It has 250,000 miles on it. It's going to go to a million. (laughs) Yes, sir. I'm going to take a picture of it when it rolls over to a million. Now, Now, what he said to me when he gave me the car is, look, I only have one caveat about this gift. When you're done with this car, you got to give it to somebody else who needs a car. Now, I don't know if I'm going to run into anybody anytime soon that needs a car with a million miles on it. <laughs> but who knows? Maybe since it's going to run that long, maybe maybe I'll do that. But, you know, um, if we're in a relationship where my friend only gives to me, And all I do is receive. And he's never humble enough to receive from me. It's not a good relationship. He receives from me. He's humble. He listens to me. So I think that's one of the things that is is, is pretty pr- profound about what's going on here, that we actually elevate people and we actually put them in a situation of dignity when we allow them... And we set our pride aside to give to us. He doesn't leave them entrapped in a relationship of dominance and dependence. 
which they would have known quite well in Greco-Roman society. That's the way it is. And in fact, for most of us and for most of the way we think about things, that what happens in relationships is, is that they're about exchange. And really what the gospel says is, no, that's not it at all. In fact, there's only, there's only one true giver and, and we are the receivers of that gift. And the way in which we manifest the gift, that gift in our hearts and lives is the way in which we receive from one another. Right. So so what I want you to do over the next couple of days is I want you to take an inventory of your relationships. I want you to think about people you you live with and you work with and 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 people you serve and people who serve you and your people who are your boss and people that you're the boss of. And I want you to think about the nature of your relationship. And I want you to repent of putting yourself in a situation where there is no reciprocity in the relationship. Because what you're doing is you are making yourself God, weirdly enough, in that relationship as the only one who gives. There's an idolatry and a, and a soul-killing pride in that that prevents you from experiencing the joy that is ours and understanding that, that God is the ultimate giver and we're in the business of giving and receiving with one another out of the fullness that's been given to us in Christ. Now, let me just say a couple of, of other things about this. So I know that there's some people in here that are thinking, yeah, Steve's right about that. I'm in these relationships all the time where all I do is give, and there's a deadbeat in my life who never gives. Right? Well... I'm certain that you would be tempted to feel that way and that you would find yourself in, in situations like that. But think about what what's happening here with Paul. Paul is in a conflict. He is in a difficult relationship. And yet in the midst of this, he takes these people who have sinned against him and will sin against them, him and he elevates them in a situation where there is an equality of giving and receiving between them. And I would venture to guess that his humility and being willing to receive from them is a big thing that God used and uses in the changing of that relationship. So, so if you're tempted to grow bitter in your relationship saying, I'm always giving and you never give, you should ask why. Have I put myself in a position where I dominate the relationship by being the sole giver? Is my pride getting in the way of real relationship? Can I allow others not only the freedom to give to me, but the freedom to give what they have and not what I might demand? Right? So I I think that's a, that's a, I know this is probably not what you expected to think about this morning, but I think this is a worthwhile thing for us to understand because this is something that I think uh, affects the way in which we relate and the way in which we fail to experience the richness and the fullness of, of everything that God has for us in this. Even moms. Even moms who think they exist in a relationship with their children and their families where all they do is give. Let me, let me challenge you today to think about that and to put yourself in a situation where, you know, to ask yourself the question, 
Have I not allowed myself to relinquish control enough of what is going on here to allow my children to give to me? Is that even possible? How is it possible that a church as broken as Corinth can be united to Paul in giving comfort and assistance to him? Think, think about that with me, right? Um, secondly, what I want us to look at is this remarkable thing that he ends this text with. He says, I am filled with comfort and all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Now, here's, here's the thing about this is, you know, we, uh, joy is this thing that lurks in the back and the mind of the heart of every Christian and condemns many of us. Or, or it is a thing that we mock in many ways. Because when we, when we come across people who seem to be joyful all the time, we're suspicious of them. Um, is there something wrong with them? How weird is that, right? That the, that the perpetually joyful seems to us like something must be wrong with them. Because how can you be joyful all the time, right? Uh, I think there's, and I think it's, it may even be legitimate to, to ask the question about the person who's kind of giddily happy all the time. Uh, one of the things my, my daughter and I talked about is something that we share in common is as she's working and being around people, she hears people come up to her and say, you need to smile more. She just looked at me. She's like, I hate it when that happens. I'm like, I do too. Do you smile more when people tell you you need to smile more? They're like, of course not. That makes me decide I'm going to smile less, <laughs> right? Don't tell me that. Anyway, she's actually quite a joyful person. She just has weak facial muscles, right? So, <laughs> so it's, the, it's the same thing with me. You know, I just have weak facial muscles, and it's just... I just don't have the energy to raise this up, okay? Inside, I'm smiling. Even outside, I look glum and depressed, right? So, so, but the, the fact is, the fact is, there is an element in this where, where it, it, the New Testament makes me really clear that a marker, a foundational marker of the Christian life and of Christians is joy. And, and sometimes that joy needs to be manifest uh, uh, publicly and physically, but certainly there is no occasion you can read in the New Testament in the midst of affliction and grief and disappointment and, and all of those things where joy is ultimately absent from the life of the believer. And I would submit to you today that, that maybe more than almost anything else, if there is a profound lack of joy, in your life, something is wrong. Now, now, what happens to us about this is is that we that we that we miss a kind of a, an understanding of that, and so so we hear the, the the command to rejoice. We hear the apostle Paul speak of joy in the midst of affliction. We we hear Peter talk about joy unspeakable, full of glory in the midst of affliction. And we hear Paul ask the church in Galatia when they have deserted the gospel, not, not you know, what's wrong with you that you're legalist. He says, where is all your joy? What happened to it? What went with your joy? Now, 
We have to kind of get an understanding of what this means because I think many of us come at this, we think, well, that means to be happy and, 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 and glad and I'm just not able to do that. And so somehow or other that doesn't matter to me or somehow or other we would say, well, yeah, there's joy there. Okay, big deal. Move on to the next topic. When in fact, there has to be something underlying and something profound about this because it runs through the scriptures. And it is clearly a marker of God's people. This weekend, uh, for many of you, your pool's opened. Summer pool life. For many of you, that feels like death. And for some of you, it's really exciting. There was a little boy who used to worship here a long time ago. long time ago. He's, he's, I think he just graduated from college. Little Tom. Tom's goal in life every year was to be the first kid in the pool when it opened on Memorial Day weekend. He would make his parents get there way before the pool was open, and he'd stand at the gate. The second it was open, he was like a shot in there into the water. So pumped, so excited. And he was going to be the last kid out of the pool on Labor Day when the pool closed. And so he would stay no matter what until, until the lifeguards had to like drag him out of there because he loved it so much. He had so much joy in that. There are, there are occasions and there are times and there are places in our lives where we would do well to be like that. Now, now what, what, what are we supposed to make of this? Well, what exactly is it then? Well, joy is the settled assurance that there's a God who is in control of all the details of my life. Now, if we just stop right there, for many of us, we think, well, that's, that's, you know, okay, that's, that's fine, but, but just because there's a God who is in control, uh, I need, I, I need a little more than that, frankly. And, and, and frankly, God in His grace and His mercy gives us more than that. You know, one time uh, recently I was sharing with a friend of mine about some difficulties one of my kids was in. And so he said to me, you know, well, I don't need to remind you. Which, you know, he must have felt like he needed to remind me because he proceeded then to remind me. Well, I don't need to remind you that God is sovereign. And then he just stopped waiting for the appropriate Presbyterian pastor's response of, yes, brother, amen. Isn't that great? To which I responded, well, I'll do you one better than that. It's not just that he's sovereign, but he's good. Because if he's only sovereign, and that's all he reveals about himself, then I'm not so sure that he can can say to me that as a result of who he is and what he's done, there can be joy. But what we know about this is that there's a God who's in control of all the details of my life. And this God is not just sovereignly in control, but that he loves me. And it is the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be made not just right, but beautiful. Now, that is a profound thing for us. That is, that's important for us to understand because what the joy that we're talking about here is an objective reality that I participate in. It is an objective reality based on the work of Jesus Christ for me. 
It is the objective reality based on the fact that this God who controls everything shed his blood, died on a cross to atone for my sins so that I have have forgiveness of my sins, yes, redemption of my body and soul, yes, but also the promise of a day and a world and a life where everything that is horrible and terrible will not only be made right, but actually be beautified. So, so it's an important, uh, next slide please, Becky. That's, that's a great uh, 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 thing for us. And this reality stands as true even when there are things going on in my life when it seems like this is not true. And this is the rub because the way we think about joy is that joy is here and I know it's something that I want to have, that I would like to have, but the circumstances in my life mitigate against that. And so we look at joy and grief and sadness and affliction as two binary things that cannot exist together at the same time in the same place. Where what the New Testament says to us, what the gospel says to us is, no, that's exactly the way it is. Rather than looking at it, well, today I have joy, but to, tomorrow I won't because I'll be sick or I'll be struggling with sadness or disappointment or sickness or that sort of thing. And so you can't have one at the same time. It, rather than looking at it like that, look at joy and grief and disappointment and affliction as a railroad track, they are, they are two, there's two tracks and they run parallel to one another as far as you can see into the future. And they both exist and they're both there at the same time. Now, certainly there are sometimes where, where one seems to dominate our emotional life and our thought life more than the other. But the fact of the matter is the objective reality of the love of God for us in Christ never goes away. And at the same time, the objective reality of living in a world where where there is difficulty and there is challenge and there is sickness and there is death and there is injustice exists at the same time. So I live in this gap. But the fact is, in the gospel, in the work of Christ, I have the assurance, the solid assurance that God loves me. The cross towers over my affliction and my grief and my sadness. The empty tomb shouts to me of the victory of God ultimately in all of these things. And so these things must be able to exist at the same time in my life with the understanding that joy wins. That joy wins, right? Um, and so, so the, so the, the fact is that's, that's how we have to begin to process this and to make sense of how this works itself out in our lives. Now, let me just stop for a second and say, add, add a footnote to this. There are some of you today whose joy, who, who lack joy, and it's not because of affliction and it's not because of sadness or grief. It's because of your sin. I'll just be direct about that. David writes in Psalm 51, when he's confessing and repenting of his sins, when he, when he, when he deals with the, the rape and the murder and the adultery and the abuse of power and all those things, he says to God in the midst of his confession, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Psalm 32 says that your hand was heavy upon me and I acknowledged my sin to you. Your lack of joy 
in the face of sin that you love more than the gospel, that is running rampant in your life, that is robbing you of joy, is that that robbing of joy, that sense that you don't have joy is the mercy of God saying to you, here's the pathway to joy, repent, 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 turn away from that thing that's killing you and be restored and renewed again in the joy of sins forgiven and fellowship with your father. But for many of us, we're just going along in our lives and things come to us, circumstances come to us, difficulties come to us that really knock us off our track. And in fact, what I would say to you today is that the, 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 the joy of the gospel, the joy of the understanding, that there, there can actually be joy in understanding that the world is broken. That there actually can be joy in understanding that things are hard. Because joy ultimately is not happiness. It is the understanding that as we live in this gap, that God is still for us and that he is bringing to fruition in our lives his ultimate purpose of our joy, right? So one of the things, you know, sometimes joy actually does overtake us in the middle of trouble, and it resolves our sadness. There are many times where I've been with people who've had terrible circumstances come in their lives, and yet you meet them with tremendous contentment and a tremendous understanding and, and, a, and a tremendous ability just to settle in joy even in the midst of difficulty. But for most of the time, though, we have to recognize that real joy, settled joy, exists right alongside the reality of sadness and difficulty and affliction. Right. Because the fact is joy and happiness, circumstantial happiness, will only become one in glory. It's not going to happen here. Um, this time of year is the worst time of year for me. I, I did. I, you know, uh, the only thing that makes May worth living for me is that the sun's out a little more. And the reason for that is, oh, that's shocking, isn't it? The, the, the reason for that is it's so busy, it's so packed with things, and at the end of the academic year, I've pretty much had it. I need a break. I need to unplug. I need to go sit by a place where I can stare at water for hours on end and read books. That's what I do. That's what, sounds exciting. Want to come with me on vacation? <laughs> That's, that's what I do. And until I get that, uh, it's, it's really hard. I had a, a challenging week this week where I knew I had to do some things that I didn't want to do. And when I was finally done with that, I walked out to the, to the car, got in my car, got behind the wheel and said, wow, things went better than I thought they were going to go. This was, this was good. This is awesome. And, you know, I'm almost smiling. And uh, I'm thinking, wow, this is great. This is you know, thanks, Lord, this is, this is really good. And, of course, because I'm a tortured soul, the immediate voice in my head is, well, what, what, would your joy be any different if things had gone terribly today? What's wrong with you, circumstantial Christian, right? Don't, don't you all have that voice in your head, <laughs> right? And I thought, you know what? That is, you're exactly right, circumstantial condemner, 
voice in my head. That is exactly right. You know, the gospel is so good and the love of Jesus is so rich. It wouldn't matter if everything went terrible for me today. Those things are true. But I tell you what, I'm really happy that God pulled the curtain back a little bit to give me a glimpse of glory that things that I did not expect to go well actually went well. And he blessed me in that moment with a secondary but rich source of encouragement, right? You see, the thing that we forget is the thing that we were ultimately created for was joy. Now, maybe you thought you were created for something else, but the overarching thing that God made us for is joy. Now, you dour Presbyterians out there may think, hmm, is that true? Read your first catechism question and answer. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we were made for. That's what we were created for. That's what we've been redeemed for. And that is the longing of my soul that will be met fully when I see him face to face. That's where we're bound. That's where he's taking us. And so in the midst of the gap between the profound objective reality of the joy of the atoning work of Christ and the life I lead uh, as a broken sinner in a broken world, I can trust him to build that joy more and more into my life. When was the last time you prayed for joy? in the midst of difficulty or in the midst of a run-of-the-mill day. Trust him. Look to him to be the source and the fountain and the foundation of your joy. Let me pray. Lord, uh, thanks today for your goodness and your love and your mercy. Thanks uh, that uh, you are the giver and we are the receivers. Deliver us from the pride that would allow us uh, not uh, to receive. Lord, we pray today, too, for joy. And I pray especially for those uh, who are here today who uh, have uh, terrible diseases, terrible pain, terrible grief, uh, terrible anxiety, uh, that you would, by your sovereign grace, uh, remind that none of that is powerful enough to separate us from your love and that you would give us joy in the midst of those trials. Lord, we, we pray as well today uh, for those who are uh, enmeshed and admired in sin, uh, that you would uh, make them sick of lacking joy and give them the gift of repentance. And so, Lord, bless us today. Uh, be, uh, uh, well, just I pray that you would be real and profound in the feeling, experiencing part of our lives this week. 
We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.